Welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship, where we are all about the glory of God and the good of His people. It is a privilege to be able to share this online resource with you, and we pray that it is a blessing to you, that it builds up your faith and encourages you on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Do you ever get that feeling like um, you just had too much caffeine? And you get all jittery. And then you throw in a problem or, tr- or two from coming at you from different angles, and then people start tugging at you from this way and then from that way, and you feel like nervous breakdown is about just a few inches away. Have you ever been there? If you were to grade me, to score me on how I deal with those situations, it, it would really be all over the map. But um, there was this one time years ago when I was a junior high leader, and we'd gone to winter camp up in the mountains here, up in Crestline, and we had a two-story, a, a giant two-story uh, dorm facility, and we had done our evening session on Saturday night, and now it was late, kids were playing games, doing all sorts of different things. I was picking at the guitar with some students, and that's when we heard bang, 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 boom, screaming. And in the midst of the screaming, I hear, oh my gosh, she's dead. And I run around the corner, and there's already a mass of students just gawking at the bottom of the stairs. And as I push them to the side, I find one of our girls who's laying there half out of her sleeping bag, body limp, neck contorted, eyes wide open, but rolled completely back. I guess what happened was, after the evening session, some of the girls decided to go upstairs and they played this game called Truth or Dare. And her dare was to get in her sleeping bag all the way over her head and roll head over feet down the staircase. Not a bright idea. But that was one of those moments where everyone is flailing around and shouting and crying and freaking completely out. Everyone is losing it, except me. (laughs) That was the moment I turned into a super focused samurai. And I moved with so much purpose and so much grace and so much fluidity. I was like a cheetah stalking its prey. I knew exactly what needed to be done. And I had the calmness and the presence of mind to get it done. Ah, that was a glorious moment. I wish I could say that that's the way I handle every stressful situation. But it is just not the way it works out. The point is, oh, you want to know the rest of the story, don't you? It's not pertinent to the sermon, sorry. The point is, there are moments when the heat is on, the pressure is turned up high, and it can be so difficult to focus, to to know what needs to be done at the time it needs to be done. It can be so difficult. How do you prepare yourself to encounter those moments well? What what Paul's about to step into here in our passage this morning is nothing less than a crucible of pressure, of mass confusion, of life-threatening danger. 
We have a big passage to walk through this morning. There is a, a, a whole lot of verses, over 40 verses we got to get through. What I, so what I'd like to do this morning is just walk us through as quickly as I can what takes place and then draw our attention to the application that we can draw as we look to Paul and how he deals with this. And what we're going to see is that there are core beliefs that enable Paul to remain mission-focused in a very high-pressure situation. What is it that allows Paul to have such a one-track mind in the midst of his world spinning absolutely out of control? Last week, we saw how the elders of the church, they had come to Paul, and they came up with a plan. We have a plan for you. You are going to sponsor four men. They're going to get haircuts in the temple to complete their vow. You're going to pay for that to be done. And the hope is that as you pay for this, and as the people see you doing this, then they're going to go, ah, maybe the rumors that we had about Paul being this anti-Jewish, anti-tradition, anti-temple guy, maybe those are just going to go away, and people are going to start to see Paul as, as a friend. And as an ally, it didn't go that way. Look at verse 27 of chapter 21. It says this. When the seven days were almost completed, it's time to complete this vow here. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and the place. And so begins the attack of the Asian Jews. Great movie title. <laughs> Who are these guys? These are the Jews from Ephesus, that, that part of Asia. And they remember Paul spent three years, three long years in that place. And so when they're in the temple and they see Paul moving about, they recognize him immediately. They know who this guy is. They did not like Paul. This is, these are the people, this is the crowd that Paul uh, told the Ephesians about all the way in Acts 20, 19. He said, they've been plotting against me. And as we've seen time and time again throughout Paul's missionary journeys, the opposition that he faces so often comes from his own people. They hated the idea that Paul preached Jesus. What's more, they hated the fact that Paul was telling the Gentiles that they could be grafted into the people of God simply by turning away from their sin and trusting in this Jesus that he took their sin upon himself on the cross? Are you kidding me? That's all they need to do? I don't think so, they thought. No way. We're God's people. <laughs> We're the ones who have been given his holy law. We're the specials here. The Gentiles, they're nothing but these filthy pagan dogs. How dare Paul say that they can become just like us without having to, do, having to take on any of, of our practices, of our traditions, of our history, of our law. How dare Paul say that? And so all the temple grounds, at a time when this place was bursting at the seams with people because of the festival that was going on, they call Paul out. They work the crowd up into a frenzy. Here's the man who teaches against the law. Here's the man who teaches against you as a people. He teaches against this temple. 
Interesting, I, I find it that that's one of the things that Jesus got accused of, teaching against the temple. Not only do they accuse Paul of that, but they accuse him of desecrating the temple. How did, how did he do that? Well, he brought a Gentile in, they say. So Acts 21, 28b says, how, moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and it defiled this holy place. The Jews from Ephesus, they must have seen Paul walking around with some people from their hometown, including a man named Trophimus, who was from Ephesus. And they didn't like Paul. Okay, now they're in the temple. Now they see Paul with four other guys. Well, hey, guess what? We can convince all of these people that some of these four other guys who were actually Jewish aren't Jewish. And they're in a place where they absolutely should not be. This is unthinkable for a non-Jewish person to be in this sacred space. There were walls. There were signs posted. There is a certain place where Gentiles can be, the court of the Gentiles, the place where it's okay for non-Jews to be in there, but there is a wall about four and a half feet tall that tells people, don't go across. In fact, one of the signs that's been excavated says this, no Gentiles shall enter within the partition and barrier surrounding the temple, and whoever is caught shall be responsible to himself for his subsequent death. That's pretty serious, right? Pretty harsh, I might say. This was such a big deal that the Jews had an agreement with the Romans. You see, for, for, the, for, for the Roman rule, there was this understanding that when it comes to the punishment of execution, well, only the Romans are able to, to carry out uh, capital punishment here, except, except for the instance when a non-Jew goes into the sacred holy place, even if it's a Roman and they go into that special sacred holy place there, the court of the Jews, well, Jews, you, you can kill them on the spot right then and there. That's, that's the agreement. That's how it works. Well, if you don't like Paul and you want to get rid of Paul, what do you think the, thing, the easiest thing to accuse him of that's going to seal the deal? Verse 30 says, all the city was stirred up. The people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. And at once, the gates were shut. Why are the gates shut? Because you don't want to have a killing inside the temple area. You don't want to defile that place. That's the whole point here, right? Get him out of the temple, shut the doors, take care of it outside. Now, the Romans, they had a fortress that overlooked the temple mount, from Fort Antonio, they're able to keep close watch on everything that went on in that place. And they were especially keeping watch when these festivals went on because things could change in a flash there. And that's why when they saw the first sign of disturbance, well, they stepped to it very, very quick. And that's what they do here in Acts 21. They march in, huge show of force. Uh, there, the estimates is there, there's, there's most likely more than 200 soldiers marching in here. Immediately they arrest Paul. They put him in chains. I wonder if Paul's having flashbacks of that prophet who took his belt and tied himself up and says, this is what's going to happen. They're going to deliver you over the tribune. He's the Roman official in charge. 
He tried to make sense of the disturbance. He's having a hard time. Verse 34 tells us the crowd was in such an uproar here. Different things were being shouted. One's accusing him of this, another this. He can't make sense of it all. So he wants to remove Paul from the situation, bring him up to the barracks, and then they're going to figure this thing out. Look at verse 35. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. And let me tell you something. If you think that getting involved in God's business is going to bring you fame and prosperity and personal dignity, well, you've got another thing coming. Paul shuttled around in his limo, right? He toured from place to place in his private jet. No. Here he is, the great Paul, the great missionary, who has preached to everyone everywhere by these guys' own, own admission. This guy is, is, is famous. And here he is, locked up in chains, carried off. This isn't some Super Bowl celebration here. Carried away by Roman soldiers. What's the crowd shouting? They're shouting, away with him, away with him. Man, if you're familiar with the Gospels, that sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Of all the Jews in the crowd, I wonder if some of them there, in fact, it had to be the case. So many of them there must have been there 27 years before, where something else was shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Now, here's something interesting. You know, if, if I was in Paul's shoes, if you were in Paul's shoes. You narrowly escape a bloodthirsty mob. I imagine, I know, I'd be pretty upset. Pretty upset. I could see myself swearing to my innocence. I'm innocent. They don't know what they're talking about. I'd be begging the Roman authorities, let me go. You have the wrong guy. Maybe I would be upset. You kidding me? You chained me up? You don't even know what's going on here. You don't even know what I'm accused of here. But here's Paul. The way Luke puts it here, he's calm. He gets into the barracks, calm, collected. What's more, he's polite. In verse 37, he asks the tribune, may I say something to you? And that's when this Roman official realizes that he may have been making a big mistake here. You see, he assumed that Paul was, was some instigator, some, some prophet from back in the day from Egypt who had brought a ton of people to the walls of Jerusalem. And the prophet had told them, at my command, these walls are coming down. We're going to invade the city. We're going to take the city. Well, when Governor Felix got wind of that, he brought his Roman troops, and they put an end to that, that, uh, that threat and they sent this Egyptian fleeing off to who knows where. Could Paul be the same guy? He might, he might be the same guy. That, what else is going to cause such a problem here in the temple grounds? Well, the moment Paul opens his mouth, he goes, uh, might not be the same guy. This guy is articulate. He's speaking Greek. He's a Jew from a rather prominent city. And now here's something else interesting. After Paul gets on speaking with this Roman official, again, he doesn't beg for release. 
He says, I'm, I'm so glad I got your attention. I'm so glad you realize I'm not the guy who you, you thought I was. Now let's talk about the, the terms of my release here. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't ask for an armed escort out of the city. You know, I need some protection here. Nor does he plead his case in any way. Instead, what does he do? He asks permission to speak to the crowd. Why would he do that? Why do you want to speak to the crowd, Paul? You hear? They're, they're, they're livid. They are furious. They are beyond all reason out there. And you think you're going to turn this around? You think you're going to convince them? You're going to convince them that you're one of them? You're, you're, you're a friend? And maybe you know, everything's going to just be all roses after this and let's go on celebrating Passover feast? Let me mention a couple things about Paul's address to them and, and then I'll sum up what he has to say. Verse 40 tells us that when he had given him permission, when the tribute, tribune gave Paul permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. If you were with us last week, you, you heard me read from 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul wrote, Though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew. To those under the law I became as one under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Well, here we have an example. Paul is speaking Greek to this Roman official. Okay, get it. Now he's speaking Hebrew to all of these Jewish people there in the temple grounds. Is he a people pleaser? Is that what's going on here? He's just really just this smooth operator. He's got everything under control. He's some type of crazy narcissist here. He knows exactly how to, to, to move, exactly what to say to get people to do what he wants them to do. I have a brother who can do that. <laughs> He'll walk into a, a Chipotle, and he sweet-talks them, and they're, before you know it, they're giving a free guacamole. Amazing. Like, how do you do it? How do, I, I want to know. I want to learn. Is that what he is? Well, it's true. Paul is very strategic. He's strategic in what he does, he's strategic in what he speaks. But as we look at what he says to the crowd, we're going to see that the results he's after are far from self serving. No, just like he tells us in 1 Corinthians, like we just read. What he's after is nothing less than for people to listen to and open up their hearts to the good news of the gospel. And so he motions to the crowd. He speaks to them in their native tongue, the tongue of their forefathers. The place goes silent. Captive audience? I think so. And the first words that come out of his mouth are brothers and fathers. May not seem significant at first, but these are the exact same words that he heard Stephen speak in his defense. Just before he participated in hauling him out of the city and watching, guarding the coats as he watched Stephen stoned to death. The exact same words. Brothers and fathers words really of endearment. They're, they're, they're a tender address to fellow countrymen, a, a friend 
I'm a family member. I am one of you. Even though these people wanted his head, he speaks to them as brothers. Did Paul look to these guys as enemies? He then goes on to tell his story. Verses 2 through 5, he tells them that this is who I used to be. He was from Tarsus. He was educated by Gamaliel, the respected, the renowned, the, the top-tier teacher of the land. He was taught in the strict manner of the law. Not only that, he's just like one of them. They're zealous for the law. I was zealous for the law. Let me tell you about this. Totally passionate for God, the traditions, the scriptures, the things of God. In fact, probably more passionate than all of you. He devoted himself to hunting down, bringing to justice anyone who is part of this Jesus cult, the way that they call it. Yeah, I took care of them. In fact, if you need evidence for that, all you have to do is talk to these religious leaders. They're right over there. Go talk to them. I got documents from them that allowed me to go arrest these people. And so there they have it. He's not different from them. He had the same background, the same love, the same commitment, the same traditions as them. Actually, looked, probably looked more devout, more zealous. You think some of them were going, ah, maybe, maybe, maybe we got the, maybe, maybe this is a mistake. Maybe this guy isn't the temple desecrator that we thought he was. Maybe the rumors about him that are being spread around about him, eh, maybe they're not exactly right. Maybe we should listen a little bit more. Paul continues in verse 6. In 6 to 16, he then tells them what happened to him. Tells them of his trip to Damascus. Tells them of the blinding light, unnatural light that outshone the midday sun. He tells them of a voice that was saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he identifies the voice. He says, this is the voice of Jesus of Nazareth. And he makes it clear there were witnesses. Witnesses. They heard the noise. They saw the light. They didn't know that it was Jesus. They couldn't make out the words, but they did see something. And they did hear something. And I wonder if there were people in that crowd who had actually spoken to these witness or witnesses or heard about these witnesses that saw, that witnessed this phenomenon. Paul tells them about the other devout Jew, the one that he was brought to the man Ananias, who then told Paul, after helping him receive his sight back, he tells Paul, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you've seen and heard. And that must have been incredible for these people to hear. You see, they, they, they'd heard they knew all about similar experiences that happened back in the day, deep in their history. They knew that there were times when God broke into human history and he called people to himself, set them apart. Their father Abraham was one of those. Moses was one of those. When God actually met him, it turned the whole paradigm upside down and it set set them into a new era as the people of God. Now Paul? Paul is one of these? Really? Could it be? Is it possible? 
Paul shared with them exactly what they needed to do to experience a turnaround, just like the turnaround he experienced. As he recounts the words of Ananias, rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling upon his name. Right then and there, he makes it plain to them the way for them to have their guilt removed and sins forgiven simply by calling on the name of Jesus. This is what Paul wrote about in Romans 10. This is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's a guarantee for you. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So there's Paul on the steps of the Roman fortress, speaking to who knows how many devout Jews, and he's telling them that he came to understand that Jesus is in fact the righteous one, the one that all you people are looking for, the Messiah. Yeah, he came to me, and he told them that God made a way for sins to be forgiven through Jesus by believing in his name. And then he tells them that he received a special calling. He has a mission now to go bear witness to the mighty things this Jesus has done. They were there. They're listening. Many must have at least been intrigued by his story. Others, well, they probably grumbled under their breath. But Paul's going for it. He's not holding anything back. In verses 17 to 21, he tells them what came next. He comes to Jerusalem. And there he has another encounter with God. And God tells him, don't stay. You need to go. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And that's when they completely lose it. He had them to a point. But at the mention of the God of their fathers telling him to go to the Gentiles, uh-uh, no way. And they begin smashing their pitchforks into the ground. They had pitchforks. Saying, this guy doesn't deserve to live. In their minds, this is completely unfathomable that their God would pass over them and send his message of salvation out there to those filthy pagan dogs? Are you kidding me? The Romans, seeing that the uproar is just uncontrollable, they haul him back into the barracks. They tie him up. They want to get the real truth out of him, so they've got a tried and true method of doing that. It's called flogging. And they're going to get out their special whip. It tears flesh right off the back. It's called the cat of nine tails. And that's when Paul reveals, hey guys, I'm a Roman citizen. And then he presses pause on the bloodletting interrogation. Okay, so there we have it. That's, that's what we have to work with, to chew on this morning. Angry mob, the arrest, the speech, the escape from flogging. What we've got here is a situation that has gone terribly, terribly wrong, at least from a human perspective. 
The elders of the Jerusalem church, they thought that their plan was going to just calm everything down. And yet, when Paul goes through with it, everything spins completely out of control. And what's absolutely amazing to me is that rather than freak out, fight for his life, or just say the right things, get that free guacamole, get me out of trouble here. No, Paul begs for the opportunity to just share Jesus with these people. <laughs> what is it that moves Paul to respond the way that he does under so much pressure in the midst of serious, serious threat? It must have been one of the most chaotic experiences of his life. What allows him to have a one-track mind? There are at least four things that Paul understands. Four core beliefs, four theological doctrinal, yes, paradigms that compel him, even in the wildest of moments, to have a singular focus. What you believe changes how you behave, doesn't it? That's what's going on here. Here they are. Paul understands first the reality of God's will. He's able to calmly respond to chaotic situations because he knows whatever happens is not going to be outside of God's plan. Paul knew he was walking into trouble, did he not? In, in 21.13, he told the protesting Christians, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. On numerous, numerous occasions, the Spirit of God was speaking to people, and they were then telling Paul, you know what, God's revealing to me, trouble is coming for you, it's waiting for you there in Jerusalem. And then in Acts 21, the prophet Agabus over in Caesarea, he takes the belt, he ties himself up. This is what's going to happen to you, Paul. Now he has a visual along with the testimony. He doesn't know what's going to come of it. He didn't know how God was going to use it. He just knew he's supposed to go to Jerusalem. He told the elders from, from Ephesus, he's, he's constrained by the Holy Spirit to go there. At the same time, the Spirit of God is telling all these other people, this isn't going to go well. So what is it? Does God want me to go? Does he not want me to go? Or could it possibly be that God's plan for me includes me stepping into trouble? That's what it was. That allowed him to step forward into whatever circumstance, even into his own arrest, knowing all the while, this is God's plan. God's unfolding his plan. I don't know what the plan is, what the outcome of it is. I know it's good, because he's God. And I gotta go forward. Let me ask you something. Do you and I have any reason to think that there might be some God-ordained, some God-permitted trouble in front of us. Yes, we do. John 16, 13, in this world you'll have tribulation. Take heart. I've overcome the world. In other words, there's trouble ahead of you, and it's part of my plan. God says, the trouble doesn't change it, doesn't change my plan. It doesn't subvert my plan. In fact, know that even through the trouble of, uh, that, that's ahead, my plan is victorious. My plan 
wins. I have overcome the world. What about Matthew 5? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wait, you're saying something comes after the persecution. There's something really, really good that comes after the persecution. How can Jesus say that? Because he knows his plan's unfolding. That's what's happening here. Yes, there are all kinds of evil things, all kinds of people who want to inflict harm, who may inflict harm on you, but God's good plans are not impacted. You see? Do you remember the powerful reality that Joseph shared with his brothers who brought him oh so much trouble? He said, as for you, you meant evil against me. Yeah, you were sincere in those efforts. You weren't playing games when you threw me into that pit and you took my coat, stained it with blood, sent it back to dad, and then you sold me off into Egypt's Egyptian slavery. You weren't playing games. You really meant trouble from evil against me. Guess what? God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive just as they are today. Friends, it's so crucial for us to understand and to live by this principle. We do not know exactly what the future holds. We know the one who holds the future, do we not? We know the one who owns it. We know the one who is seeing it through, bringing it to completion to the result of his good plans. And because of that, well, we shouldn't be shocked. Shouldn't be bent out of shape when trouble crosses our paths. No way. Jesus said, it's coming. We can count on it. And yet at the same time, because we know that whatever comes our way, he's going to bring it about for his good will, we can step into it with confidence and resolve to keep on living for him even through it. Like Paul, we can both anticipate the trouble on the way and the opposition and be prepared to carry out our mission through it. Isn't this the way it is for soldiers? When they go to briefing before they're going to go into battle, are they told that, you know what, it's just a bunch of amusement park rides and candy apples out there. You're going to have a great time. Just don't worry about it. Just go. No, 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 no. They're told this is the enemy out there. They're stationed here, here, here. Here are the kinds of weapons they have. Here's what you need to take. Be prepared. This is going to be tough. Some of you might not make it back, but go. This is the mission. So we don't step into tomorrow unaware, do we? You keep your sights on the mission that God has given you because you know that whatever comes your way is part of the plan. Paul knew that. I, I'm going to Jerusalem. That's where I'm, yes, I, I get it. Agabus, yes, I, I see. Give me my belt back. I need to pull my pants up. I'm, but I'm going. Secondly, Paul understood, he understood God's sovereignty. Even when he faced the possibility of, of death on the spot, Paul continues to be mission-minded, doesn't he? He has a one-track, mission-focused mind because he knows that God's call upon his life was not a suggestion. In Acts 22, 15, Paul tells the listening crowd, God made it clear to him, in no uncertain terms, I'm to be a witness to everyone of what I've seen and heard. This is not a fair-weather mission, is it? This is not a mission that's dependent upon circumstances or right conditions. No, he's to go out and be a witness, period. And it wasn't dependent on age. 
God didn't say, you know what, let's, let's do this until you reach the age of retirement, then you can back off and, you know, hang out and go collect shells on the beach. No, 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 no. This is a life calling. It ain't over till it's over, my dad used to say. We're doing chores. <laughs> it's not working with my kids. What happens to Paul here? He's falsely accused, dragged every which way, threatened with death, arrested, misidentified, misunderstood. What does he do? Ask for the opportunity to witness, to testify of the work of God in his life. He's got a one-track mind. Why does he have a one-track mind? Because God gave him a one-track mission. That's it. Let me ask you something. What have you been called to do? You place your trust in Jesus, great. What's your life mission? To go out and make the most of it? Life, liberty, pursuit of whatever? Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you see that, church? What's the light that you're to shine? Jesus said in John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but in the light of life. Acts 1, 8, Jesus said, you'll receive power. I'm equipping you for this. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, it, it, it spreads from here. It starts here, and then it goes. What's all of this adding up to? Well, it's adding up to the reality that you and I who, if we've been washed by the blood of Jesus, we've been brought out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We've been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The moment we first believed in Jesus, we have been handed a God-given mission to bear witness to Christ and his work, just like our friend, the Apostle Paul. And just like him, we need to recognize that this call, it's not a mild suggestion from a buddy, even from a mentor, from a parent, from a well-respected teacher. This is a calling that has been bestowed upon us by the sovereign hand of of God. We talk about God's sovereignty all the time, don't we? Don't we? When we want to understand, oh yes, he's got it under control. He's got it under control. He's sovereign. But we also need to realize that he is sovereign when it comes to what he tells us to do. It means that what he says goes, that his plans can't fail, and what, his, what he commands must be done. Paul's understanding of God's sovereign, authoritative call on his life, it just drives him forward. It doesn't matter the pressure cooker. It doesn't matter the threats. He drives forward. Third, Paul understands God's work. 
We saw a little bit of this last week. What I mean by that is that Paul's very much aware that any good thing, any transformation that's taken place in his life, any deliverance from trouble, any number of people who are coming to faith in Jesus, it's all the result of God's working. God needs to be given the credit. Remember, we talked about that, how he shared with the Jerusalem church and, and, and said, this is, this is all from God. It's the same is true as he's speaking to all of these Jews on the temple grounds there. God was the light from heaven. God is the voice that comes out of nowhere. God's the one who commands him, get up and go to Damascus where he's going to meet Ananias. God's the one who appointed him to come to faith, uh, to see the righteous one and come to faith in him and to be his lifelong witness. And God is the one who tells him to leave Jerusalem and get out there and go to the Gentiles. When Paul was giving the detailed report to that church, it's all about God. All about God. Paul understands God's work, and it leads him to do two things. One, praise him as he looks back on the good things that God has done. But you know what? It allows him to trust as he steps into the future. It was all God's work back then. Yeah, I recognize that. Praise God. He got me through that. I, 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 don't, I, didn't know, I, don't, I couldn't have done it on my own. God did it. But now I look forward and I see, whoa, this ahead of me? I can't do this. You're right. You can't do it. God did it back then. He's the one who's going to do it up ahead. Knowing that God is the one who powerfully is working and accomplishing his good purposes in our lives, that should fortify us so that we might step boldly, even at times into harm's way or into uncomfortable conversations, difficult moments in obedience. Why? Because we know that it was never by our might or by our cleverness or by our resources or by our samurai-like skills that we accomplished his will. No, it was by his awesome power, his spirit. Zechariah 4.6. Do you know that God is the one who deserves the credit? And that should give you all the confidence to move forward, even into precarious situations with a one-trek mind set on bearing witness to his name. One last thing. Paul understands God's love. Who in their right mind has compassion on a bloodthirsty mob foaming at the mouth to take his life? I'll tell you who. God. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that they might spit on him, lie about him, torture and abuse him, put him to death in one of the most excruciating ways possible that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. The very people who were lying about Paul, who were seeking to kill him, arresting him, making false assumptions and accusations against him, he knew were sinners just like himself, in need of a savior. And so he's able to respond to them with grace and respect. He doesn't lash out at them, doesn't demean them, disrespect them, curse them for lying about him or mistreating them. Instead, he's polite to that government official, isn't he? And he addresses the mob as brothers and fathers, just like when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. Bless those who persecute you. Paul was doing exactly that. Our tendency, my tendency, is to devalue 
anyone who offends me. I know who to protect. Anyone who hurts me conspires to work evil against me. That's when it's so important that we remember Ephesians 2, that we were all once dead in our trespasses and sins, children of wrath like who? Like the rest of mankind. What did Jesus command us in Matthew 5, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That means... That when we love these despicable, lost, hell-bent people running out there, running around us, meaning to do us harm, when we pray that they be responsive to the truth of the gospel, they might repent and turn to Jesus, when we do that, our hearts are perfectly aligned with our loving Father in heaven. It was Paul's love for God's people that led him into the temple that day, wasn't it? He went along with the elders' plan because he loved God's people in the church. Maybe I'll get a chance to share the gospel. Guess what? He did. It was Paul's love for God's people that led him into even the most chaotic, confusing, dangerous moment of his life to lean into the opportunity to evangelize a hostile crowd. Does your understanding of God's love lead you to do things like that? Our God is the God who takes situations that appear to us like they're spinning absolutely out of control and he turns them around and he redeems them to accomplish his good purposes. He, nothing has changed on his part. He was going to work through them anyway. That's what he does. And we know what we're called to do we're called to bear witness to this incredible God of ours, right? That's why it's so important for us to have locked down in our minds some core beliefs, the same ones that Paul had. We need to know God will accomplish his will, and we can step into whatever may come with confidence that God is in control. He's going to accomplish his plan through it. doesn't matter what comes our way. Second, we need to know God is sovereign. Not only is he in control of all things, but you know what? The things he calls us to do, they need to actually be done. So we need to march forward in obedience to his commands and shine bright the light of Jesus. We need to know that God gets the credit for his work. And our belief that he's responsible for things in the past needs to tell us he's going to take care of what's coming in the future. Finally, we need to know God's love for lost people. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And so we ought also to lay down our lives. Let's pray that the love of God infuses us. It fills us. It flows from us. That we might have a one-track mind bent on sharing that love of Jesus with others. Father, we, we thank you for reminding us of these truths we pray, Lord, that you would write them on our hearts, that you would engrave them on our minds so that when trouble does come our way, that like Paul, we might have a singular focus, give it everything that we've got, not to preserve ourselves, not to preserve our dignity, our lives, but to point people 
to their one and only hope in Jesus Christ. We love you and we thank you. I thank you, Lord, that so many in this room have that hope, have that confidence, that they call you their own and you call them your own. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Bethany Bible Fellowship. For more resources, visit our website at bbfoc.org.